This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, you guys give me grief when I say I have an extra special guest, but once again, I have an extra special guest. Sir Martin Franklin has such a fascinating career. He started out working with his father, taking apart conglomerates, and later decided he would rather build companies than disassemble them, and put together quite an amazing streak. You might be familiar with Benson Eye Care. The returns on that were 1,800%. He also put together Jardin Corporation, which generated returns of over 5,000%. He's built a number of companies, and really over the past 20 years, turned what was known as blank check companies, or SPACs, into quite a respectable way to put patient capital in place to make long-term acquisitions different from private equity, which he describes as renting assets. He wants to own assets uh, on behalf of himself and his investors. Really just an incredibly fascinating career. He's done so many really interesting things, and his track record is quite astonishing. So with no further ado, my conversation with the founder and CEO of Mariposa Capital, Martin Franklin. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Our extra special guest this week is Sir Martin Franklin. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Mariposa Capital. Previously, he was CEO of Jardin Corporation, Benson Eye Care. He was named Antigua and Barbudo's Special Economic Envoy and was knighted as a high degree of knight Grand Cross. Sir Martin Franklin, welcome to Bloomberg. Hi, Barry. How are you? Thank you. Pretty good. Pretty good. So I wanted to include some of the more eclectic things in your background because your career path is is a little unusual. When someone asks you what you do for a living, how do you answer them? It's never very easy. I describe myself as a business builder. You can't fit that on your uh, immigration form when they ask you to describe your employment, but that's, that's kind of what I am. Bit of an operator and, a, uh, and an investor, I guess, a hybrid. So you began working on hostile takeovers at a pretty young age with your father. How did that yeah. impact your views on finance? You know, I, I think I learned a lot in those early years. One of the things I learned was that corporate headquarters were a bit of a waste of time and money. That view hasn't really changed. My father always used to say the quality of a corporation is an inverse proportion to its location from its headquarters. In other words, the further, the further away they were from the headquarters, the better the business. Often those rules are true, but that was probably the biggest thing. I mean, what my father and Jimmy Goldsmith did in those days was a necessary act to deconglomerate the conglomerates of the 60s and 70s and certainly served its purpose. One of those conglomerates you were appointed CEO of was DRG, and you were assigned to break up the conglomerate via asset sales. What was that experience like? Highly unusual. I mean, I think I was only about 24 or 25 years old. I probably did more M&A than most investment bankers in that, in that time. But it really was quite an experience. What, what, we took a headquarters from 110 people down to seven. And we had certain businesses within the group didn't even know that it had happened. You know, the underlying businesses were of varying quality. 
But there was no doubt that they were all very appreciative of being sort of let free from the shackles of a, of a fairly poorly run conglomerate. So in 1992, you returned to the United States where the idea was rather than break up companies, uh, you wanted to build something. Kind of reminds me of a key plot point from the movie uh, Pretty Woman. What, <laughs> what was the motivation of um, saying let's, rather than deconglomerize these mashed up companies, let's see what we can build. How, how did that go? You know, I, I'll tell you, I, I had a very close, I still have a very close relationship with my father, but like any good son, I kind of wanted to blaze my own path. And one of the things that was very apparent to me was it was much less fulfilling to break up a company. And, you know, when you're building something, everybody's sort of rooting for you. The investment community is rooting for you. Employees are rooting for you. The establishment is rooting for you. And, um, you know, when I started on that path of building Benson Eye Care, it was just all the energy was positive energy. And so I found it much more enjoyable. And, uh, you know, again, I don't know what my father did. It was was necessary, but it was very much anti-establishment. It was often hostile. You know, there was there were people laid off as a result of these things. Uh, whereas when you're building, you know, you tend to be employing more. Um, it is a much more positive energy experience. So uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. So let's talk about Benson Eye Care for a moment. You were the youngest CEO of a company ever listed on the NYSE at the time. And subsequently, you generated returns for your investors of 1,800%. Tell us a little bit about Benson Eye Care. Sure. Well, I, I really started with very little money. And uh, I had made, a, made some money, you know, when I was working with my father. But basically, it started with my buying 11 optical shops from, an, of a, from a company called Sterling Optical, which was, sure. going, which was going bankrupt. And I got an SBA loan. I think I put up $100,000 and bought these stores. I think it was the only SBA loan that they... That, that NatWest made that year. It was, you know, one of those years that was a, you know, down economy. They hadn't made many loans. Anyway, we bought that business and folded it into a shell company called Ehrlich Boba Financial, which was a then defunct former municipal bond broker. Stock was 38 cents a share when we reversed it in. We, at the same time, bought a chain of formerly bankrupt uh, stores in Minnesota called Benson Optical, hence the name Benson Eye Care, and they ran dispensaries inside ophthalmologists' offices. Hmm. Anyway, that's how we started. We, 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 with a bit of smoke and mirrors, it gave us a business with about $50 million of volume and very little in profit. And we were off to the races. And long story short, we, we started buying manufacturers and distributors of eyewear. The largest acquisition we made was a company called Optical Radiation, which I think we bought in 1994, which was a home run transaction. We ended up owning the largest system of uh, lens processors in the United States, you know, optical labs making lenses into prescriptions. Anyway, we sold the company to Essilor, which was the largest lens maker in the world in 1996. And, uh, you know, returned to investors. The stock went from $0.38 cents to $9.70. My memory recalls right. Not, so we not made a lot of investors, and that was my capital base, quite frankly, from which everything else I've done was built. So, so let's talk about the next thing that you built. You end up joining Jordan 
a few years later, or that wasn't the initial name, was it? And that no, grew. The, that company, I actually didn't join it. I forced myself upon it. I would be more. <laughs> I bought 9.9% of a company called Ultrista, which was a spin-off from Bull Corporation, mm-hmm. and made a, a takeover, take private proposal to them, which they rejected. Then they made another and another. And basically, they, they had made a, a couple of very poor acquisitions. And every time their numbers came down, I had readjusted my offer and management continued to fight me on it. And in the end, they held an auction. I was the only bidder. And finally, <laughs> the board decided to invite me to be a director at Exchange for Standstill. So Ian Askin, who's been my partner and right hand for the last 31 years, he and I uh, went on the board. I went to my first board meeting. It was an extraordinary event. Um, and at the end of that board meeting, they decided to fire the CEO. And um, 90 days later, made me chairman, chairman and CEO and Ian, vice chairman and CFO. And uh, I think split adjusted, the stock was about $1.20, if I remember rightly, about $10 pre-split. And we built the company from there. It was about a $250 million business with about... 30 million of EBITDA. And it was, it was one of those stories where the board decided to actually invite in, a very rare story, I mean, where the board decided to invite in the protagonist and actually saw that I had a plan and the view and shareholders were richly rewarded. We, hit, we, we built the company for 15 years, 34% compound return, sold the company when the stock was about $60. So that's about a 5,000% return. And, and just to put some flesh on those bones, when you joined, it was about $300 million in revenues. By the time Newell Brands bought it for $15 billion, you had over $10 billion in revenue, 120 global brands, 35,000 employees, all of which begs the question, how did you manage to scale up from what was essentially a faltering company into something so successful that Rubbermaid had to grab it. Uh, it's a great story. Some of it was luck. Is that we actually ended up with fifty-five thousand employees, which was a bigger, even bigger wow. than, than it sounds. But we, we, um, you know, the beginning was was it was an incredible series of events. The first was one of the bad acquisitions they had made at the very beginning. Um, and by the way, the company's loans were in the red zone. You know, the warning sort of potential default zone at Bank of America. It was like one of those sort of loans that they were watching out for. So the company was really in poor shape. But they had bought the last acquisition that they made, the very poor acquisition. They paid $158 million, if I remember correctly, for a company, but they bought it as an asset purchase. So when we sold the business for $24 million, the business that they had bought, it created a large NOL. And we filed an accelerated return with the government and got back $25 million of previously paid taxes. And then we got a little bit lucky. The uh, Bush had done the stimulus uh, bill and allowed companies to go back a further three years to recapture previously paid taxes for the NOL and got another $25 million. And that gave us enough liquidity to really solve the balance sheet issues. Our residual businesses were very profitable. As I said, about 30 million of EBITDA. And then we bought a company called Tilia, which makes the food saver product. And we paid only four times EBITDA for it. Everybody thought it was a one-trick pony and its profits weren't going to be sustainable. 
and its profits went from 25 million to 40 million. So we, we, we had started with an extraordinary base. It was the only deal I've ever done that literally doubled earnings per share on the day we did it. Obviously, the stock performed very well from it. And, and that gave us the building block on which to build. And I think the rest of the story is not so much what we did right, but the things we didn't do wrong. I mean, we, we didn't have any real failures. We, we bought good businesses and, and made them better under the, the umbrella. We never borrowed too much. We used equity where appropriate and sort of navigated that route for 15 years, stuck to our knitting. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about the state of business today and what's driving things. We, we were talking earlier about Jordan being purchased by Newell Brands in 2016. What was that experience like? You, you've been through a lot of purchases and sales of assets, but this was a pretty decent-sized transaction. Yeah, it was about a $20 billion gross transaction, $15 billion on the equity. You know, my view, I looked at the sort of behaviors of my children and felt that a lot of the company, the businesses inside the portfolio were becoming less relevant to the next generation of behaviors. So I felt it was the appropriate time for, you know, us to consolidate portfolio with somebody who had a similar portfolio, giving the businesses combined, you know, greater leverage and strength within uh, their sectors. But also the decision was a personal one. I, uh, I felt that we had taken the business a very long way. We generated superb returns, and this was the right time to move on. I was also in the process of building a family office. I had a son, and I had more children, you know, sort of ahead of the oldest son, to come and sort of join a, uh, a family office environment. And so, you know, the coincidence of timing felt that it was the right time. I think with hindsight, you know, probably the right move. Obviously, uh, I didn't see uh, COVID-19 coming <laughs> or anything like that, but definitely, um, you know, was, was the right move with hindsight. So since you mentioned COVID-19, you were until recently a director of Restaurant Brands International. They have such brands as Burger King, Popeye's Chicken, Tim Hortons. How has the pandemic affected those sort of businesses and what was it like during the depth in March and April of, of the lockdown across the U.S.? You know, I think that there are retailers, quick service retailers, food companies that have been hit differently than others. The retailers like uh, McDonald's and Burger King and Popeye's that have significant drive-through services have been far less damaged than, you know, casual dining concepts where, you know, you're sitting inside a restaurant and delivery or drive-through is a far smaller proportion of the business. So I would tell you that they've managed through this admirably, obviously at lower levels of, of volume in, in some areas than, uh, than others. But, you know, in terms of being able to keep their business strong, maintain their dividends, hold on to the employees, They've been spared. As I say, the more casual dining concepts have, have been decimated. If you don't have a capital base on which to operate and you, uh, you, know, you, live, you operate month to month without the sort of government support, you're out of business until consumer behavior completely changes again. 
So let's do a little comparison with the industrial conglomerates today. How, how do they look compared to the conglomerates of, of the 70s and 1960s that your father was spending a lot of time taking apart? <laughs> well, I would say, first of all, there are far fewer of them today. The conglomerates of, of yesterday were fueled by continual, continuous deal-making. You know, they were taking advantage of accounting anomalies about, you know, on treatment of goodwill and things like that that aren't the case today. They were also far fatter. They generally dealt with very large headquarters and were fiefdoms in their own. And I'd say today they're much more targeted, more disciplined, rarer, uh, as I said, and get probably get less of a discount as a result of being a little more focused than... Uh, than the conglomerates of the 60s and 70s. What about a giant conglomerate sitting with a lot of cash like Berkshire Hathaway? What, what happens to that entity in the post-Buffett-Munger era? You know, I'll give you an analogy. I, I would think of it the same way as one would think of Lowe's Corporation after the passing of, the, of you know, uh, Larry and Preston Tish's founders. Though the you know they're great assets, great companies, but the if you like the investment dynamism that existed with the founding entrepreneurs, you know it, it, at least for now is not the same. Uh, that's not a knock on them; it's just a different generation, and you, that would be a normal course of events. I think that Berkshire Hathaway will probably be the same story. I, I think they'll you know it doesn't change the quality of the assets when they're not there, but I think that the sort of innate instinct of when to when to make a big bet and what big bet to make is something that you don't get to pass on. You either have it or you don't. So, um, you know, I, I think whoever Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger put in as caretakers, you know, of, the, of, of Berkshire for the future, they will probably be very admirable caretakers, but they won't be... Warren Buffett and Charlie Munker, because you can't be. That's not how life works. Right. There, there is no replacing those two guys. That's correct. So, so you were founder and chairman of Element Solutions, uh, a chemical technology company. Seems very different from some of the previous companies you worked on. How did you find your way to that? And was it really all that different from some of the other companies you helped to build? No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm currently involved in, you know, five quite significant sized businesses. And Element, you know, is one of them. Element has the set, shares the same characteristics as all the other ones, which is the, the businesses inside Element are the market leaders in their respective niche. It's a very high free cash flow business. It's got good management. It's got some really defensible mo moats around it. Those are really core characteristics that you'd find in our frozen food businesses, Nomad Foods, which, you know, same thing for API, our life safety business, and Royal Oak, you know, my charcoal business. They're, they all are leaders in their respective niche market. Element's not really a – it's a specialty chemical company, but it really is a services company. It, you know, when you really get into what it does, what it does is it helps manufacturers in their manufacturing process. And it's really the technicians, as much as the chemicals that we sell them, that are what 
our customers pay for when they're um, when they're dealing with you know our various business units. Hmm. Quite quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the world of public markets and private equity. You've worked with firms in the past like Blackstone and Pinnacle. How is it what that what you do is different from private equity? I'd say most distinctly, it's the difference between owners and renters. Private equity, mm. even the best of them, are renters of businesses because they own them with a specific mandate to sell them at some point in the future. So in some cases, that's, it could be six months, could be five years, could be 10 years, but they always end up selling them because that's the structure of how they have their capital. I'm in the permanent capital business. So, you know, the way I invest in the public market, um, the only way that, you know, I'm a seller is if the company itself is, you know, sold because somebody comes along and makes an offer for all the shares. We don't tend to look at it that way. We look at our businesses from a very, very long investment standpoint. You know, we talked earlier about Berkshire Hathaway, probably the same philosophical approach in terms of investing that once we own something, we intend to build it for the long term. So that affects decision-making, capital investments, long-term approach to ownership, incentives for, for employees and how we treat employees, I think are very different in uh, what I do to private equity. The analogy I use is if you had an apartment and you were a renter and you, you had a hole in your wall, you might put a poster up to cover the hole, whereas if you're the owner, you're going to fix the wall. That, unfortunately, or fortunately, is, is the difference sometimes in, in approach. What, what's the old joke? Nobody uh, washes a rented car? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. How do you make sure that your investors are patient capital? There's been so much discussion about shareholder value and focusing on the next quarter as opposed to the next decade, how, how do you ensure you're attracting the right investors to be owners with you of, of the companies you're running? You know, that's, uh, that, that's a very good question. I mean, the truth is you don't. What we tend to do reputationally, people know by you know, our long history that we are patient capital, and that tends to attract a certain kind of institutional shareholder. We are also our own activists. I mean, I think that's something that is an important point to make. If you have shorter-term type-oriented investors, I think when you communicate with them and they understand that you're balancing the short-term and the long-term to drive value, that gives investors some comfort. For investors who really don't care about the business long-term prospects and just want short-term return, you know, there's nothing we can do about that. But they tend to be in the minority. But because we've been able to drive good value over the long term, overall, you know, we tend to we tend to attract the right kind of investors. You know, I've always believed that you sell equity to investors the same way you sell products. You know, there are, for investors, there are 5,000 different public companies to choose from. Why invest in yours? You've got to give them a reason to be interested in your equity. And, you know, for people who sit back and think it's all going to come their way, those are the ones that tend to get, you know, undervalued or, you know, have the wrong kinds of shareholders. We actually make a, a real effort to find the right shareholders that fit the right profile to our sectors, explain to them why our business, you know, is, is merits investment. Hmm. 
quite quite interesting. I'm curious about what you described as being an activist investor in your own businesses. What does that look like? Well, you know, capital allocation is where you really make a difference in terms of returns. You know, if you look at Jardin's history, we weren't just good owners and operators of our businesses. We knew when to add equity to our business, so we knew when to buy equity back. We did some significant buybacks during the course of uh, Jardin's evolution at times when we felt that the market had significantly undervalued our company. And with hindsight, those decisions were very good decisions. So I think, as I say, being your own activist and being proactive with uh, capital allocation, whether it be for acquisitions or buybacks or, you know, other forms of financing, you need to be adept at both. It's not just selling your product that, uh, that, that can create value for shareholders. So we're always very cognizant of, of that. Let's talk a little bit about these blank check investment vehicles. How did you first get involved in them? I kind of remember in the 1990s, they were thought of as a little bit sketchy, but they've since matured, haven't they? They have indeed. I mean, I I think I was probably the catalyst for them getting their respectability with hindsight. I think I've done $8.5 billion worth of equity investing with SPACs. The first one I did was the largest of its kind ever done, and I think one of the first done by one of the larger bulge bracket investment banks. It was called Freedom Acquisition. And Freedom was $525 million, I believe. At the time, no one had done one. I think the largest before that was maybe three or $400 million. And yes, it was, a, it was a very successful one. We used it to buy the largest hedge fund in Europe at the time called GLG, founded by Noam Gottesman and his partners. Then we had two more after that, each called Liberty, Liberty and Liberty International. And then we had Justice. So we did Freedom, Two Liberties and a Justice. Probably the next one should have been called For All, uh, <laughs> but we didn't. We, had, <laughs> uh, we changed the names after that. Uh, but we created some great companies. Obviously, one of them, Justice, was Burger King, which now is Restaurant Brands, which is a, what, $20 billion plus market cap company, $25 billion market cap company, something like that. One of them was Liberty was used to create a company called Phoenix Group Holdings, which is now a FTSE 100 company. Nomad Food, more recent one that I've done, is now the largest frozen food company in Europe. We've done a number of these these vehicles and really created companies that are very notable. So, so you mentioned Justice Holdings. One of the partners and investors in that was William Ackman of Pershing Square. How did that partnership come about? So Bill's a friend of mine. I've known Bill for many years. Nicholas Bergruen and I had partnered into the first three or four vehicles that we had created. And really, actually, it was, it was, it was a funny story. We were, we were at the end of our fundraising process. And we'd raised, you know, enough money to, uh, to be, have a fully, you know, funded deal. And we met Bill. And he said, look, I really want to join you in this because I, I want to learn how these vehicles work. And I'd love to be your partner. And we were like, well, when, you know, when sort of it's a bit late to really think about having another partner. He said, I tell you what, I'll give you enough money just tacking it on that it's neutral to you economically if I join you as a partner. So he invested. I actually can't remember the amount of money we're talking about. It was maybe it's, it must have been over $250 million. It could have been more. It could have been $500 million. I just don't remember. Anyway, it was a... Um, a significant investment, and it was it was economically neutral to us. So we thought it'd be fun to do a deal with Bill. 
which is what we did. <laughs> so he's a uh, pretty avid tennis player, and he later um, made the observation, you can learn a lot about someone based on how aggressive they are with their serve. I know you're an athlete. Have, have you guys played much tennis together? And how aggressive are you with your first serve? Well, I can tell you that the last time I played tennis with Bill, which was a few years ago, I beat him the first set. And that was not a good outcome from my perspective because he wouldn't leave me alone until we played again. And then we played another <laughs> yeah. set. He beat me in that one. And we, I don't think we've played tennis since. <laughs> so, and I don't consider myself, an, uh, 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 you know, I, I played squash for Penn for a period. And I'm not a bad tennis player, but I, I don't play all the time. I actually probably play two or three times a year. But I'm an, I'm an athlete by background, and so um, I can get lucky on, on, a, on a set every once in a while. Yeah, you've done some triathlons and some ultra marathons and Ironman championships. How, how did you get interested in, in that sort of personal abuse? Uh, <laughs> it's a good description. I, uh, I was a soccer player. I played in college, and then I played in the Cosmopolitan League in the New York State area until I was about 32. And every weekend, you know, injuries would get make it less and less fun. And then my brother actually suggested that I try a triathlon. <clears throat> and I did my first one, and I really enjoyed it. And then I did another and another. Then somebody said, you know, you should try a half Ironman. So I tried that. And then somebody said, well, you couldn't do an Ironman. So I went and did one of those. And then I started doing a bunch of Ironmans and found that I enjoyed the distance. And then I met a guy called Vito Biala who uh, said, I'm going to take you to a place where very few people have been. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, have you ever thought of running in the desert, 135 miles nonstop in the middle of July? I said, no, nobody does that. He said, he said yeah, we could do that. <laughs> so I said, I'm in. And so one of my first ultras was doing this race called Badwater, which is this ultramarathon in 130 degree in the shade heat in uh, Death Valley in July. And uh, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's kind of addicting. And, um, but I did that race. I, ran, I think in that race, I ran for 41 hours and then um, did a bunch of other ultras around it. But, um, but I don't do those anymore. I'm too old. Yeah, you, you lost me at Death Valley. <laughs> Anytime yeah. they name a place like that, it's probably nowhere anyone should really be running. So, so let's get back to some of the SPACs. You mentioned uh, Burger King. Eventually, Justice Holdings merged with Burger King. That worked out pretty well. How, how did that deal come about? So, you know, we've looked at a number of these different opportunities. Bill had, a, had a, uh, an existing relationship with 3G. We've actually gone very close to doing another a different deal with Blackstone. And my role really was to do the diligence because Bill was conflicted since he was already an investor in the 3G fund that had invested in Burger King. You know, what I saw, I liked. And uh, we ended up agreeing a transaction that with hindsight has been very successful. I mean, we really bought 30% of Burger King before it was ready to do an IPO. But it gave them, we had a billion and a half dollars or so in the vehicle, and that gave them the opportunity to deploy that capital into other projects that they were working on at the three, at 3G and really recycle the capital that invested in the, the Burger King buyout. It was a very successful deal, but became way more successful after it had gone public. I mean, stock went from... 15, where we created the vehicle, really, to, I think, at the height, about 75, 77 or so, I think the stock was. 
And since COVID, it's still held in there pretty well. It's over $55 today. That's uh, pretty respectable. The other SPAC that I wanted to ask about was Freedom that you ultimately used to help GLG go public. What was that experience like back in, was that 07, 08? <clears throat> yes. That was probably one of the easiest deals I've ever done because Noam Gottesman, who's you know a good friend of mine, and Nicholas 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 was my partner at the time. You know he understood how SPACs work. I remember the meeting we sat in an off, in his office at GLG, and he said, "Look, we both know how these things work and how they should look. This has drawn us out in the back of a napkin, and, and if we can agree on the terms, let's just give it to the lawyers and be done." And that's exactly what we did. I think the whole the whole negotiation took about 45 minutes. The rest was done by the lawyers. And at the time, you know, a lot of these other hedge funds were looking, uh, or these alternative managers, we call them, were looking at different avenues of how to go public. Some were going through a, a vehicle that Goldman Sachs had created to try and create a listing. Some had looked at the traditional IPO route. Some had done, you know, looked at reverse acquisitions. They're very di- different approaches. This one was by far and away the most successful and traded the best of all of them. So it was, it was, with hindsight, you know, the right thing to do. And I think that gave us the sort of credibility to move on to the next vehicle that we created. So you're still pretty active with SPACs today. Given the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown, what areas are you seeing where opportunities exist? And are there any areas of the economy that you see as permanently impaired that aren't particularly attractive to you? Well, I would say two things. First of all, uh, I am still active. We just bought a company at the end of last year called API Group. Great company. It's the largest installer of life safety systems, fire suppression and the like in buildings in the, in the United States. Does a lot of service and inspection work that's regulated work. You know, love, so we're, you know, love the last vehicle that we created. We're, we're going to create another one, I'm sure, in the coming months. You know, look, I think that there are sectors that are permanently impaired. And I think the market, as all markets are, sometimes get a little upside down. You've got a lot of companies today that have very few, very little in the way of revenues and very little in the way of profits, trading at ridiculous valuations. And then you've got some really solid companies that the market doesn't seem to care about. And, you know, those things correct themselves over time. They always do. I'm not sure that I would say that there are sectors that are permanently impaired because permanently is a very big word, but I would, there are sectors I wouldn't touch today. No one really knows whether there will be a, a good vaccine that will come out for the coronavirus that we have out there today. But if there is, you know, some industries that, are, that could be permanently impaired will recover. But I wouldn't want to be in, in travel today. It's just not a sector that I think is going to fare well in this environment. I'd want to be in businesses where people are doing more things at home. Just a sort of a general theme. So, you know, I think that whether it be the casual dining concepts we talked about earlier or, you know, vacation package companies, convention companies, uh, you know, things where where human beings are gathering in large numbers. I'm not sure those are sectors I'd want to be in today. Makes a lot of sense. So we've talked about... String after string of of successful investments and wins. Were there any misfires or failures along the way? You you've really put together quite a streak. I, you know, 
been very fortunate. I think that my father always used to say, you make more money on the deals you don't do than the deals you do. And I think where I've been most fortunate is not making some very large errors. The only two times that I got out of my lane and did sort of venture capital things, I, I lost all my money. But it wasn't, it was, the amount of money we're talking about wasn't that much, relatively speaking. So they were cheap lessons, but they were lessons I didn't soon forget. And so I've tended to stick to my lane. And, you know, I've never gotten complacent and always stayed fairly humble about these things and, and kept my investment discipline. You know, did my own due diligence, never sort of delegated it to consultants. The team around me has been with me for my career. As I told you earlier, Ian Ashkin's been with me for 31 years. Jim Lilly, my partner on the operations side, been with me for 17 years. Head of my family office has been with me for 30 years. You know, we, we, when we find the right people, keep them around you, and you tend to navigate to the right place. Let me ask you about two kind of interesting things you're involved with uh, of a little more personal nature. Tell us about your work with the Wounded Warrior Project. I actually haven't been involved with Wounded Warriors for a while, but I, when I raced Badwater, I actually raced for Wounded Warriors. I had, I had a soldier, his name's Steve Robeson, still a good friend of mine, who lost his leg in Mosul. And I actually host him every year still now for a holiday. Uh, stays at my home in Antigua. And, you know, just an American hero. And I was quite involved in their early years in, uh, in, in Wounded Warriors, but really as a fundraiser as opposed to anything else. Obviously, the unsung heroes in our, in our country are uh, the, the masses of, of wounded veterans that have uh, you know, come home and um, need support and work and everything else. You know, one of the things I love about API, the company that, that we invest in today, is a lot of military vets in the business. Uh, which builds not only a great culture, but a great work ethic as well. So let's talk about Antigua, since you mentioned it. What does a special economics envoy actually do? Antigua's a small place. My family have been there for over 30 years. Uh, my parents live there. They've been citizens there for many, many years. So, you know, my, my love of the island, it's a small island, only a population of about 100,000 people. Getting connected to the right people outside for governments of small countries is sometimes not easy. So what I do, it's not a job, it's an honor and to do it for them. But I try to connect them wherever I can to the right people who would take an interest in investing in Antigua uh, or helping Antigua in any particular way, particularly when we have crises. You know, we had a, a, a hurricane that basically wiped out Barbuda. So I was quite involved with helping them with relief efforts. Uh, and really the same thing with COVID-19. We've been doing a lot of things in the ways of food programs and sourcing medical supplies, flying medical supplies down to the country. You know, little things that to a population that's relatively small make a big difference. So, um, you know, that's really the role I've, I've played. It's not a formal role. It's, an, it's a role I play because of my connections to the island. And the knighthood, is, does that have anything to do with this being a former British colony, or is that specific to no, it's Antigua? very much so. No, very much ah. so. It's something that's on the Queen's list, but it's something that the recommendations come from the colony. So it's an honor. I don't take it too seriously. It helps every once in a while getting a good reservation at a restaurant. <laughs> right? That's, that's what doctors used to do in the United States in the 1960s. <laughs> Medical school was worth uh, worth it for that. But you, you, did you get to meet the Queen? Was she the one who actually 
knighted you, or was it a little no, less formal done, of a ceremony? It was a little, it, well, it was equally formal, but it was done by an envoy. It was done in Antigua. So, uh, but they send an envoy over from the UK uh, to oversee it, and it's on Queen's List. I actually have been to Buckingham Palace and all that, but that was for the more charitable things in the UK. Quite interesting. So, yeah. I know we only have you for a finite amount of time. Let's get to our favorite questions and, and see what we can learn learn about Sir Martin the person as opposed to the Knight of the Grand Cross. Let's talk about, we've been talking about lockdown and pandemics. What are you watching under lockdown these days? Tell us your favorite Netflix or Amazon shows or, or what podcasts you're listening to. I watched the other day, I watched Eurovision, which is Will Farrell's latest movie that got launched on, yes. I think it's on Netflix which, you know, because I grew up with the Eurovision Song Contest, I thought was extremely funny. So uh, that, that's my latest favorite. I, I've been watching all the episodes of Fowder. I don't know if you know that series. but uh, Oh, sure. It's, 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 it's nail-biting. It's, it's nail-biting and it's frighteningly accurate. I watched an interesting movie, movie on fungi, which I find fascinating. So, yeah, those are sort of my favorites so far. Yeah, I, I've learned not to watch Fowder right before I go to bed. Otherwise, I'm I'm up for hours. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's so exciting, and and I was shocked to learn it's actually very popular throughout the Middle East, not just in Israel. It's kind of interesting how widely that that has been viewed throughout, you know, the West Bank and everywhere else. It's true, and it's uh, you know, the reality. I, I go out there quite a bit as a place in Tel Aviv, and. Um, there's a lot of accuracy to all of that. Quite interesting. So tell us about some of your early mentors. I have to assume your father is somewhere on that list. For sure. You know, he certainly was in all my formative years of some of my priorities in life. But I worked for Wilbur Ross with my first real job at Ross oh, really? at the time. And uh-huh. uh, Wilbur was a great mentor for me. He, you know, he was very kind, teaching me things in the early days. When I really knew nothing about business, I, I, you know, I was a political science major. I'd never taken a business course or anything like that. So he was really someone who was uh, a big factor. And then my father's partner, Jimmy Goldsmith, you know, watching him and my father at work and doing what they do. I guess those were my, my three biggest mentors, my father, Wilbur and Jimmy. What are you reading these days? Tell us what's keeping your mind busy. And, and what are some of your all-time favorite books? So my favorite book I've just finished, actually, is have you read uh, American Kingpin? It's all about the fellow who built the Silk Road, which was this, you know, place where you can buy and sell pretty much anything on the dark web. Someone who's not really a technology person, I thought it was fascinating. It's also a quick, easy read. I really enjoyed that. You know, I tend to read books that are more historical context. One of my favorite books of all time is, is called The Third Chimpanzee, which is an early book by Jared Diamond. You know, I, I, Paul Johnson's Modern Times, another favorite book of mine. All the Yuval Hariri books I rather like. Sapiens, Homo Deus, they were great books. That's my kind of, my kind of reading. I haven't figured out what I'm going to read next. I just literally just finished uh, American Kingdom. I'll put those on my list. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in a career in either finance, investing, um, M&A? For me, I think by far and away the most important thing to learn is how to communicate. I think so many kids today, you know, they're very smart technically, 
but their IQ is a lot better than their EQ. And so I, I would say really learn how to write, be able to communicate in writing. It's not just about a short email. It's also, you know, the personal touch uh, to it, how to write a letter. You know, I think um, learn how to treat others as you would expect to be treated. You know, the right way to present yourself is uh, those are, to me, I know they sound very basic, but those skill sets that have often been lost in our youth, I think. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew when you were getting started out 25 or so years ago? Well, I wish I knew that there was going to be the greatest long, long-term long growth in equities in history because you could probably use a pen and been, you know, pin rather, and been successful in investing just by buying something 25 years ago and keeping it. Uh, <laughs> but I guess outside of that, uh, I think, you know, sticking to one's lane is is what I've learned over the years, is if you really know something in depth, stick to it for the long term. And I think that you can make superior returns doing that instead of being, if you like, too wide in your uh, approach. I think that's something that over the years I've learned, you know, pays better. If you really know a space and, and focus on it or have a philosophy about the kind of business that you like and stick to that, you're going to make better returns. Thank you, Sir Martin Franklin, for being so generous with your time. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of the other previous 300 such discussions we've had over the past six years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. Give us a review at Apple iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put these conversations together each week. Maruful is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.